0: From PRX. Studio 360.
1: One of the greatest parts of this job is getting to talk to interesting, talented people I admire week after week. 2016 may have sucked in a lot of ways, but at least in this respect, for me, it was a good year. For instance, I love talking to the actor Frank Langella.
0: I'm not an actor who takes a job because it's close to a golf course.
1: As well as the film director Alejandro Iñárritu. And that was a privilege. That was a gift. I met with a dialect coach and kind of, sort of, learn how to speak with a British accent. Croft. Croft. That's it, exactly. My producers even convinced me to go to a laughter yoga class.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, a guy just walked in and he's like, what is going on?
1: But if I had to choose a, a favorite, there is one conversation that I really enjoyed, partly because I came to it with no particular expectations.
0: There. Like show business, like no business I, know. I didn't
1: grow up being a, a real musical theater, theater, theater guy, but as I sort of learned about it, I, I met Jack Vertel, who is a prolific hands-on producer of major Broadway shows, including Hairspray, one of the shows I really loved, and Kinky Boots. And this year, he published a book called The Secret Life of the American Musical, How Broadway Shows Are Built. So I asked Jack to come in and give me a kind of master class in this genre. It turns out that way before he became a world-class critic, historian, dramaturge, producer, Jack Vertel was a Broadway superfan.
0: I was five years old, and my grandmother, Daisy, and my parents took me to see Peter Pan at the Winter Garden with Mary Martin. The end of the first act of that show, where they all fly out the window to Neverland and the curtain falls on the last note of music, is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. Did a
1: a 40 year old woman playing a boy not? strike you and everyone as weird?
0: You know, I don't... It didn't strike me as weird. I do remember... I don't remember too much about being five and seven-eighths years old, but I do remember my parents telling me that I would be able to see the wires, that they weren't really going to fly, and I think they wanted to keep me from, you know, disappointment. Although, actually, the wires were one of the most exciting things about the whole event for me because I could watch uh, magic in action somehow or other. So, you were happy...
1: To not suspend disbelief totally.:
0: I was happy to know what the terms of suspending disbelief would be, that I had to accept the wires, that I had to accept that people were going to sing, that there was an orchestra right in front of me. I was in row double A, one and three, and so I could actually look over the rail at the brass section, which I did from time to time, and, and I spent the entire first intermission doing it because it was the most beautiful sight I think I'd ever seen. Really. So uh, what did you do next? Actually, next is an interesting question. I spent the next month or so after I had gone home and told my friends at school the next morning that I would make them all fly at my sixth birthday party in a frantic – uh, fear of what would happen when they came over and I didn't know how to make them fly. you little liar. I was a little liar and I actually sort of went out and pretended to be building a flying machine in the backyard so that I could help, but I knew that it wasn't really going to make them fly. And I was in a panic on my sixth birthday, but my mother told me it wouldn't matter and it didn't matter. They'd all forgotten that I had
1: done Yeah. Do that. It sounds like, okay, you're six years old. Uh, no wonder you're doing what you're doing now. I mean, it, it does does it feel like, okay, that's the moment, Com- my completely. aha moment?
0: Yeah? Completely. I tried to do a few other things in my life, but I never really wanted to do anything but participate in the theater in some way or other. And I think certainly at that age and even at a much older age, I didn't know that there was anything except acting because when you're a kid and you go well, to the you theater, know. you see
1: acting. So in high school and college, is that, you did in that In high stuff? school,
0: I acted all the time. We did five plays a year and I was in all five of them. I did two shows as a freshman in college and realized – virtually instantaneously, that being the best actor at a small boy's prep school in Connecticut was not the same thing as being an actor, and that was the end of my acting career. Yeah. And
1: so how did you ended up being a a theater critic at the L.A. Herald Examiner.
0: Correct. I started out as a theater critic for something called the L.A. Reader, which is uh, – the Reader still exists in the places like Chicago yeah, and, yeah. and San Diego. The one in L.A. never really caught on, but I, that was where I started, and that's where the Herald folks read my stuff, I guess. And when their theater you were retired, they retired, they said, do you want this job? And I said, you bet. And then your next job was as the
1: dramaturge at the Mark Taper Forum, also in L.A. Uh, by the way, am I
0: supposed to say turge or turg? We said turg at the Mark Taper. Yeah. You can say turge, but, you know, we also spelled it without an E at the end. Yeah. Oh. So. It, the, dramaturg or
1: dramaturge is one of those words that we people who aren't in the theater, oh, yeah, we, we – yeah, fine. OK, I get that. But – of civilians don't know what that means. What does it mean?
0: It doesn't mean anything as it turns out. It's a German word that I think in Europe has a definite meaning, although I couldn't tell you precisely what it is. Um, But what it turned out to be at the Mark Taper was that I was sort of, Gordon Davidson was the artistic director who was one of the sort of lions of the not-for-profit theater movement. Um, I ghost wrote his program notes. I did research when we did plays and put up, pictures on the rehearsal room wall of what Hedda Gobbler's life was likely to have really been like in 1890, whatever it was. Um, And I worked with playwrights on emerging work, uh, trying to help them sort out things that still needed sorting out, which was really the part of it that was most uh, useful to me. So
1: you're like an editor-coach. Kind of, yes. Um, You have written this uh, fascinating, entertaining book uh, that is sort of like – uh, the decoder book, uh, <laughs> blueprint book for the musical, how they really work. Um, and now I've seen one musical since I read it, and it did make me watch it in a different way. Uh, so let's go through this master class. Uh, the overture <laughs> is is was, in the old days, the instrumental beginning of the show.
0: Then the opening number. Break down the important component parts of a great opening well, number. Michael Blakemore, the director, had this wonderful thing that he said once at a dinner party that I was at, which is, the minute the curtain goes up, the audience is in trouble. And what he meant by that was that you don't really know where to look or what you're looking at. And, and of course, scenery helps tell you where where we are. But a great opening number, I think, typically doesn't delve into the plot of the show quite yet. But sets a tone, uh, introduces you to what the world of the piece is, when the piece is happening. And, and it should do all of that work, you know, in a, an unexpected way that makes you want to get on the ride and, uh-huh. and, and find out where it's going to happen. There are no rules yet in the show. Right. But by the end of it, you should pretty much know what the territory of yes. the show is. OK. I want
1: to play one of your textbook opening numbers from Oklahoma in 1943. And, and while it's playing, explain what we're seeing on stage. There's a bright golden haze on the middle. There's a
0: bright. We're outdoors, very, very far from Broadway.
1: The corn is as high as an elephant's eye.
0: This is a cowboy who wanders on stage, whose love for the land and for his surroundings is completely unguarded.
1: Oh, what a beautiful morning.
0: Before Oklahoma, most shows started with a, a, a chorus of people on stage singing some form of, you know, "Welcome to the Show" or "A Pretty Girl Is Like a Melody" or whatever. And Rodgers and Hammerstein, who had agreed to adapt this play that was set in a rural farm, and didn't have any opportunity to bring a chorus of people on right at the beginning. And so they wrote this number for a single person to wander out on stage by himself. And nothing like that had ever been tried before.
1: And I'm so happy to learn that and think of that because, of course, one thinks of Oklahoma and that song as so old-fashioned, so corny, and yet it was the height of modern
0: minimalism, I guess, in
1: 1943.
0: It was. It really startled people. And I think it startled them with less rather than with more. And that in itself was startling because shows – Musical shows tend to be muscle-bound, you know. They want to do everything all the time. Yes. So, flash
1: forward, 1975, 30 years later, a chorus line, which once again reinvented the musical. When the show starts, we are in the middle of an audition for
0: a Broadway show. From the top, a five, six, seven, eight... Dancers, 25 or so, are working on a routine, but they're in rehearsal clothes... This is an interesting moment because it combines a classic opening number, which is the everybody on stage opening number, and here's the location and here's the point of view of the show, with what we call an I Want song, which is the song that says, this is my ambition, I have to achieve this.
1: So the next key component is, as you say, the I want song, which is the main character explicitly saying,
0: here's what I'm after. Musicals are very uh, different than most other forms of storytelling in that they keep stopping and starting their songs and dances and costume changes and scenery changes. And if you don't have someone driving the story forward in a very specific way, it's hard to succeed. Um, and so one of the things that Tends to work really well in a musical is a character stepping up and saying, "This is what I want." It's hard to get. I'm going to get it. I'm going to die trying if I don't get it. Watch me. Let's go. And musicalizing that moment is a is a, a challenge that we all call the "I Want" song.
1: Gypsy has a great, very explicit "I Want"
0: song called "Some People." Set up what what has happened. What what we are seeing. Well, the, in the opening scene of Gypsy, it has a it has a very. Uh, um, modest opening number, which is two little girls who are a kiddie act in vaudeville uh, doing their number. I will do some tricks I'll tell you a story After it's over, we realize that the, the the main character of the story seems to be the mother of these two girls, and that they have no talent. Um, but she's going to get them out and, and get them on stage. One way or another. One way or another, and of course, the real ambition is not for them, it's for her. Some people can be content Playing bingo and pay paying rent That's peachy for some people For some hum-drum people to be Ethel Merman. Ethel Merman, the Ethel Merman. But some
1: people ain't me I never forgave my parents for not taking me to this show.
0: A wonderful dream, Papa. All about June and the Orpheum circuit. Give me a chance and I know I can work it. I had a dream. It's
1: also uh, a show about show business, like Chorus Line. That, that right. works a lot, I guess, when it works. The,
0: the show business metaphor for musicals, it, it gives you lots of opportunities to sing and dance that seem earned in some way or other because it's show business. So, yeah. you know, you get to watch the number in the show and yes. the number in the show yes. within the show.
1: Uh, The hugely successful, maybe transformative musical right now, of course, is Hamilton. And one of the reasons is that uh, when you look past its innovations and its newness, using hip-hop, racially counterfactual casting, it's really
0: an old-fashioned musical. In some ways it is. It has an opening number. It has an I Want song. It has a a lot of sort of typical pieces of the machine in it. And its I Want song is? It's called My Shot. I'm not going to miss my shot. I know the action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting I'm passionately smashing Every expectation, every action's an act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow And I am not pulling away my shot. I am not pulling away my shot Ayo, I'm just like my country I'm young, scrappy, and hungry One of the great things about hip-hop is two great things. One is that just energetically, it really does drive you forward. And the other is that thematically, a lot of the best hip hop is about social change. And this is a show about a society being formed. So they they really go very well together. A much better natural mate for musical theater than classic rock and roll, which tends to have lyrics that are repetitive or uh, very simple minded or, uh, you know, uh, Jerry Lieber, who wrote a lot of the early rock songs, once said, most of my songs are content free. (laughs) And I thought it was a great phrase. Yeah.
1: Um, Having read your book, I I see that a a great musical is like a a machine or like a big old fashioned novel. And, you know, you need the musical numbers to propel it. You need the subplots with lesser but interesting people. And then when something one of those or more is totally out of whack, the whole thing uh, falls to pieces. Um, You write about uh, a funny thing
0: happened on the way to the forum
1: that was maybe fatally flawed. And they and they Fixed
0: it. Yeah, it was. It, that's a show that uh, was a disaster out of town. It wasn't – people didn't laugh at that show out of town. And it had an opening number called um, Love is in the Air. It's each minute the whole step and you're in it With all the fun involved. Who can on It was a charming song about love and it drives you crazy and, you know, you'll never – and. And this is going to be a charming evening of charm. The show doesn't have any charm. The show has mayhem. You know, yeah. it has. It's a lowbrow knockabout comedy. So, uh, Stephen Sondheim and George Abbott and Hal Prince uh, and probably the book writers as well, Larry Gelbart and Bert Surevlev called Jerome Robbins down to wherever the show was trying out, Washington. I think it was at the National in Washington at the time. And he looked at it and said, "Well, you've got the wrong opening numbers. You've got to write a number about." welcome to your audience, you're going to see a lowbrow farce. And so uh, Stephen Sondheim went back and wrote Comedy Tonight, which is, you know, a seven- or eight-minute event.
1: Frenzy and frolic,
0: strictly symbolic, something for everyone, a comedy tonight. And at that one thing... It, it immediately it transformed? changed everything, because things that weren't funny two hours into the show, when Love is in the Air was the opening number, suddenly were funny. Huh. And that's really a kind of alchemy and and, and I think took on Robbins's part an understanding of what the importance is of setting up the expectations for the audience in the right way.
1: Uh, you've worked uh, as a dramaturg and a producer on lots and lots of musicals including in Butterfly and The Producers and Jelly's Last Jam. I, I'm fascinated by when you were wrong about something and and were proven wrong.
0: Uh, there's a number in Hairspray that uh, Motormouth Maybell sings toward the end with the, with the ensemble. It's a very – it's a 6-8 gospel, classic I know gospel. where I've been. Yes, I know mm-hmm. where I've been. And it replaced a number called Step On Up, which was a much hotter number, you know, much jazzier number. And I really felt it was not right to stop this show in its tracks, which is basically a can't be comedy with a political edge with to that, it yeah to have this whole civil to rights thing to have this aria. whole little like quite somber civil rights moment i was a hundred percent wrong i mean it wasn't that i was afraid of the politics of it because the whole show is political right but the composer and lyricist mark shaman and, and scott whitman and the director jack o'brien and the various book writers really wanted to stop and 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 just pause and i thought we'll never recover from this you oh. know how will we ever you're the boss this? how did they beat you down i wasn't the boss i oh. was the dramaturg oh uh-huh. <laughs> when i saw it up on its feet i thought well that was stupid I mean, obviously, it was yeah. a great, great idea. Ah!
1: That was Mary Bond Davis in your original Broadway production of Hairspray. A musical like that is in sharp contrast to Stephen Sondheim, who's a genius with his own brand of musicals, complicated, lyrically, musically, philosophically. But it strikes me – tell me if you agree or disagree with this – that in this century, in the first decade of this century, something happened that allowed musical comedies to be actually funny and huge hits again – and I'm thinking of Hairspray and Book of Mormon. And, and I felt like to the degree I went to musical theater, new musical theater in the previous 25 years, like, meh. And, and suddenly the, the, the atmosphere allowed those shows to happen.
0: Um, I think that 's true, I think we went through a real shock of the new about ourselves uh around the time that Stephen Sondheim was writing Company and Follies, where we all woke up and you know the Vietnam War was uh, coming to an end uh, It actually ended on the night of the first out of town preview of a little night music um that 's like, a fact you just happened to know I was there oh. Carrie who stopped the curtain call and announced uh-huh. that an accord had been reached uh-huh. uh, It was quite a moment um and i think we uh, wandered around a little bit shell shocked for a while as a nation uh, after that somehow in the in the last 10 years or whatever we've found new and different ways of making merry uh in a ser- you know it's a seriously good thing i think yeah. but those new and different ways do involve a fair amount of cynicism a fair amount of you know, a gimlet-eyed view of the world, so that you you would meaning
1: ne- they're actually funny, as I said. Well, they're
0: actually funny, right? But you would never confuse hairspray with, uh, you know, a musical comedy from the fifties, right? It, it just they're different. They're right. really different. Right. Uh, say a Book of Mormon, most of all, perhaps.
1: No, it sort of had to almost die as a form to be reborn, in a sense,
0: I guess. Uh, or uh, you know, the cultural clock had to go around quite yes, a few times. Yes,
1: yeah. So your family has. Been in theater to lesser or greater degrees for generations, starting with your grandpa.
0: My grandfather uh, had a building business. Uh, He built a couple of Broadway theaters and he built theaters all around the country. This
1: is in the teens and 20s? This was in the
0: 20s probably. Uh, The Broadway theaters were both built in the 20s. And, uh, and then my father, who eventually went into business with him and was in that business for a long time, wrote a play his senior year in college, which was produced on Broadway in 1937, the year after he wrote it, that ran at the theater where Hamilton is So now.
1: Proudly We Hail?
0: He called So Proudly We Hail. Now, now Hamilton has already outrun my and,
1: father's. But, well, it didn't it run like weeks? It was Two a weeks, bomb, right? Two yeah. weeks,
0: yes. Hamilton's
1: obviously an incredible piece of work, just won the Pulitzer. And it's presumably raised the bar for other kinds of musicals, has it
0: not? I think it has uh, certainly caused a lot of people to think, oh boy, my show better be special in some way. It better be unique. And
1: so the the mediocre meh shows that inevitably are opening, have opened, will continue to open, don't uh, – the people making those don't feel like, why am I even doing this if I can't make something approaching Hamilton?
0: I think on some days they do and some days they don't. It's a manic depressive business and we're all delighted to be in it.
1: Yeah. So uh, I wanted to think of a song to play you out on. At the end of this interview, the obvious would be, uh, of course, for Man Get Your Gun, uh, Ring Berlin's uh, There's No Business Like
0: Show Business, but too obvious. So what should we play you out on? Well um, – you know, uh, Broadway Baby, which is from Follies, is a song that's about a slightly pathetic character who wants to be in show business. How about that?
1: Self-deprecating to the end, or at the end. Jack Fertel, this has been a pleasure. Thank
0: you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm just a Broadway baby Walking off my tired
1: feet Pounding 42nd Street
0: To be in a
1: the great Jack Bertel. His book is called The Secret Life of the American Musical How Broadway Shows Are Built. And since our conversation, I really have been watching and listening to musical theater in a new way. Waiting
0: for that one big chance to be in a show.
1: And that is it for today. On Thursday evening, as usual, we'll deliver you another episode of the whole show. In the meantime, thanks for listening.
0: All twinkling lights, a spark to pierce the dark from Battery Park to Washington Heights, someday maybe.